Thank you for joining us here at Brave Church. We hope our teaching inspires you. For more information about gathering times, events, and other resources, visit brave.church. Here's this week's talk. Well, hey, welcome to Brave. My name is Samuel. I'm one of the pastors here in Uh, It's great to be back. I've been gone for the last two weeks. My wife, Marcy, and I had an opportunity to go and visit some friends, uh, one of which I grew up with in France. I didn't grow up in France, but he married a French girl, so now he lives there. And I was invited to come speak at their church plant there that they're a part of. And so it was a really cool experience to see a church that's just getting off the ground and just kind of relive that experience of when we came here to help start Brave Church. And it was awesome. I just want to show you a quick photo of the city. This is Montpellier in southern France. It's the fastest growing city in France. So check this out. One more photo. Um, These are some of the guys at the church. The guy to my right is the pastor of the church, and these guys are like huge rugby players. And so I was like telling them, you know, we're a football church, and like they're a rugby church. But it was really cool because I got to share with them some of the incredible things that God's been doing here in our community, and it really inspired them. And so it was awesome to be a blessing to them, but also we'd love to bring a team back at some point. Um, so stay tuned on that, and maybe more of us can go back and be an even greater blessing. Uh, but also, one more thing happened. I became a godfather. <clears throat> so this is Hannah, and you know, it's kind of cool because I grew up with my dad just watching The Godfather, taught me a lot of leadership principles <laughs> through that movie. I never thought I'd be one, though. So if any of you need any favors done or just whatever, my, my office door is open, just stop by, make you an offer. Um, but today, we're on our last of two parts concluding the letter of Ephesians. So we're going to be in Ephesians 6, if you want to follow along, starting in verse 10. And we're going to look at verses 10 through 20. Next weekend, Pastor Darren will be completing our series. We've been in this for several months now. We've been learning a lot, but let's begin by reading our passage, verses 10 through 20. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything to stand, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, and pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Would you pray with me this morning? God, I just pray uh, that during our time together in your word that you would reveal truth to us, that you would reveal truth, that we would see what it is um, very specifically that you're saying to us and that you want us to walk away with and what it is that 
how you want us to apply these truths to our lives. So God, I just pray for an openness to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so at the beginning of this passage, uh, this is really interesting. Right at the beginning of verse 10, he says, finally. As if to say, up until this point, everything I've written about, um, about what it is to be a Christian, to become transformed into the image of Christ, to live this life, to build your life on a foundation of God's word, it all needs to be understood in this context. So this is really significant. Instead of signing off his letter with, sincerely, Paul, you know, BFF Paul, I love you guys, see you soon, Paul. Like, he says, no, there's one more thing that I need to say. And this is really important. And it gives vital context to everything that we've learned so far. He's saying, unless you see this context in which you're applying all of this great stuff that I've been telling you, you're going to make some mistakes, So to better understand this, imagine with me that you're sent with a group of people to build a fortress, a military fortress. You've been assigned with this group of people. You've been given this this purpose. And so you have a blueprint, and some of you uh, are masons. Some of you are carpenters. Some of you uh, do various different things. And so there you are, and you're in this city, and you're building this fort, but you're not told one key detail. There's one thing that's left off, and that is that you're building this fort in enemy territory. Now, how many of you, if you were given this assignment, you'd like to know that detail, right? You'd like to know, okay, we're building an enemy territory. As followers of Jesus, we believe that God is real. But many of us are either unaware or we live as if the enemy isn't. And this is a problem, not because we don't know who's greater, Not because the victory isn't secure, but because when you know that an enemy is shooting at you, you go about things differently. You're probably going to build in a smarter way. You're going to be less likely to go at it alone to try to do things on your own. And you'll probably be more strategic and intentional with how you do things. Growing up, I used to spend uh, my summers doing construction with my papa. And it was really hard work pouring concrete, backbreaking work. I learned a lot during those summers. One of the things I learned is I didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. (laughs) So those of you who are in construction, I have so much respect for you. But it was really hard. And as I was working with him over the years, I was learning different um, parts of the trade. And there were ways that we did things that were smarter. There were ways that we did things that were more effective. For example, we got up really early on days that we were pouring And we got to the job site earlier because if you wait later in the day, uh, it gets too hot. The concrete starts drying too quickly, and it gets away from you, and it's much harder. Sometimes you have to redo the entire job when that happens. Um, I also learned that when we're removing a a driveway because it's been cracked and it needs to be replaced, that the way that you uh, manage the jackhammer either allows the strength and the power of that jackhammer to work for you, Or you're going to exert a lot of energy and a lot of strength just trying to keep it under control. So it's in this sense that Paul is saying, here's the Christian life. Here's what it means to build your life on a firm foundation. But you have to realize that you're doing it in the context of being surrounded by an enemy that doesn't want you to succeed. And there is a way that you're going to need to go about this. Paul says in verses 10 through 13, Finally, 
Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God. Why? So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God. And here's why. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. I think everyone in this room, if you put your biases and your prejudices aside, you know exactly what he's talking about. An evil day is a day where we sense there's some power, there's some force, there's something that's coming around, it's shadowing you like a cloud, it's taunting you, it's undermining you, it's making you feel guilty, it's making you feel tempted or feel bad, it's provoking you. You know what these days are like, you know that they're there, and in some cases, uh, there are days where it seems like nothing worse could happen. Maybe you feel like your family's under attack, your marriage is under attack, your health is under attack. Maybe old habits are sneaking up on you, depression knocking at your door. So you've been through some of these days. I've been through some of these days. So what do we do on these days? A friend of mine called me recently, and I hadn't heard from him in years. He was a good friend. And I was really excited to catch up with him, so I answered the phone. I'm like, hey, man, how's it going? And he said, well, my life's never been worse. Last week, my brother died of cancer. Then I found out my wife was cheating on me. So he's having a really bad day, but I think that something more was happening in his life. What do you do on these evil days when you're under attack, when it's clear that you are under attack? So let's play out a few scenarios. One is, and this is what a lot of people do, is they shrug it off and they dismiss it as a series, of con- uh, a series of coincidences. And sometimes they are, but sometimes they're not. If you're building this fort and you're laying the bricks for the wall, and as you're laying these bricks, one of the bricks splits, and you think, oh, that's odd. Why did that happen? And then it happens again and again. There's a point where you're going to wonder, is this just a coincidence or is, is something shooting at me? Is something splitting these bricks? So one approach is to write things off as a series of coincidences. Another approach is to get paranoid and say, my life's going so badly because of this person, because of that person, because of the Republicans, because of the Democrats, right? Because I just have really bad luck. A third possibility or another approach is to to start feeling bad about yourself. You say, well, the reason everything's going so wrong is I must be a bad person. I must be a failure. This is just my lot in life. Um, I should have seen this coming. A fourth approach is you just start reading stuff online. You get caught up in conspiracies. You you guys, everybody knows a few people like that. They always know the latest conspiracies and how they're going to affect their life. Um, I had had a friend tell me a a year ago that the end of the world was going to happen, and he was like really believing it. And That's a tangent, but if you're in the room and you're one of those people, you're still welcome here. We love you. (laughs) Or you can say this. This is a day in which the forces of supernatural evil are particularly against me. I need to put on the armor of God, and I need to stand strong in his power. Paul's saying on the evil day, when it feels like something is out to get you, maybe something is. And the only solution is to put on the armor of God. And this is the most psychologically healthy thing that you can do to avoid bitterness, to avoid living in fear, to avoid unnecessary guilt, 
is to say there's more to this than meets the eye. There's more going on here. Paul says on the evil day, put on the full armor of God and realize that you're struggling with more than flesh and blood and that this is a time to stand your ground. So we probably experience more warfare as followers of Jesus than we realize. And if you're following Jesus, these days are a reality. And and when they come, what are you going to do? So you put on the armor of God, you take your stand. And today we're going to look at three things that this verse tells us to do. But first, let's read this verse one more time. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So here are the three principles. First is that love is war. Second is that supernatural evil exists. And thirdly, victory is the Lord's, but we must fight. So if if you didn't get notes, uh, our ushers are available. Raise your hand, and they'll get those to you. You're going to want to take notes today. Number one is that love is war. Christianity is all about love. Following Jesus is all about love. And often this leads us to really emphasize peace. Philippians 4 talks about the peace of God, which passes all understanding. Romans 5 says, now that we are justified by faith in Christ, we have peace with God. So of course, there's peace in your life when you're no longer at war with God, when you receive what he's done for you. And when you have the life of God in you, your life's marked by a peace that cannot be experienced apart from God. But according to this text, you can see that the life of a follower of Jesus is also marked by warfare, just as much as peace. The Bible is just as insistent that when you become a Christian, new warfare has begun. New conflicts have started because when you go to war with one person or with one country or with one group of people, you've made an enemy with the other side. So to know you're a Christian, you experience this peace, but you also experience warfare. And some of us uh, followers of Jesus, we actually stop growing because we shy away from the conflict. We retreat from it. But walking away, and this is really important, walking away is as good as surrendering to the wrong side. Martin Luther King Jr. said, for evil to succeed, all it needs is for good men to do nothing. Now, I get it. Conflict is uncomfortable. And and if you love conflict, there's probably some things you need to work through, right? It's not good to, to love fighting, okay? But at the same time, if you run from the conflict, you'll stop taking ground and you'll stop growing. And this is a problem because to grow in love means to keep fighting, Because love is war. So some of you might hear that and and you think, man, this talk is intense. I wish it was one of those funny talks where we just laugh the whole time. And you're like, this is Memorial Day weekend. I was just going to barbecue. We were just going to hang out. And, you know, it's interesting because I didn't know that I was going to get assigned to this passage on Memorial Day weekend. But it's kind of perfect as we remember those who laid down their lives fighting for our freedom that we can also remember that there are martyrs of the faith that are the reason we're here. People that gave their lives to this cause just as we're being called to do. And I pray that none of us need to give our lives physically, but that there were many people that were willing to do that following after Jesus Christ. So this is exciting stuff, but it's also serious. It's serious because this is a serious situation. Being reborn is as serious as being born. 
uh, when a mother gives birth, it's not a casual walk down the block. If you're in a burning building, you don't just take your time thinking, oh, I'm going to grab a few things and consider how I might want to leave. No, you run for your life. You get out of there. If you still think that following Jesus is all peace and no war, you haven't grasped the situation. Your mind and your heart are not alive to how serious this is. If it's alive, if it's kicking, there's running, there's fighting, there's violence. Because when you're alive to a serious situation, there's a pulse. Matthew eleven twelve says, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. And that's Jesus talking. A modern translation would go like this, The kingdom of God advances through violence, and the violent take it by force. So do you know what that means? It means that anyone who's alive spiritually is alert to how urgent this situation is. For example, maybe the surest thing you know about your future is that you're going to die someday. And maybe the surest thing you know about the people sitting around you is that they're going to die someday. And that death creates urgency. A spiritually alive person says, God, what are you asking me to do today? Because there are a lot of things that we could do. There are a lot of things that we could get distracted by. There are a lot of things um, contending for our time to, to fill our time. But at the same time, as follower of Jesus, we have to stay aware that there is a cause, that there is a mission, that people's souls are at stake. But the enemy tries to keep us from living our purpose by distracting us or getting us comfortable with sin. And I say, I use the word sin. We don't use the word sin a lot come to think of it. But it's not probably what you think it is. See, when we hear sin, we think, oh, the Ten Commandments, or we think of murdering, or we think of all of these things. But sin is actually anything that creates a distance between you and God. And it might not be as black and white or as extreme as you think it is. It's a very personal uh, thing. There's a cafe in San Francisco that I used to live near called the Dubose Park Cafe. And it's a sister cafe to Dolores Park. And in it, there's an art piece that is so uh, provoking, I just never forgot it. And I actually have a photo of it. And you see these rows of prescription drugs, and across the front of it is the word normal. Sin is a narcotic, and it puts you to sleep. Sin makes you say, well, there's always tomorrow. Sin makes you say moderation in all things. Sin makes you say, I've got to keep everything balanced and under my control. Sin makes you say, I need more stuff, and my life is all about my career. But following Jesus, it wakes you up to the seriousness of the situation, to the urgency, to the problems around you and the people that are hurting, and you start focusing more on giving your life away than trying to keep it. Culture says, you go to school, you get a job, you save some money, you get married, you have kids, repeat. You go to school, you get a job, you save some money, you buy a house, you have kids, and the cycle repeats. And there's nothing wrong with those things unless they become the purpose of your life. I think some of us needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. When I'm preaching up here, I'm preaching to myself. Love is war. And scripture says if you're a Christian, there's a fight going on. 
There's a lot of churches, and I'm not thinking of any in particular, I'm not judging other churches, but there are a lot of churches that have adopted this country club mentality, that it's all about serve me, teach me, what are you offering me, is, do, you, what, do you have the best programs that I'm looking for, will I be the most comfortable in this place? But Brave Church is not a country club. Brave Church is a battleship. We have a mission, we have a purpose in this community. Did you know that 62 people attended our growth track? last Sunday, and began discovering their purpose, we're mobilizing. We're going to do some stuff because love is war. Amen? Amen? So maybe some of you, you've been Christians for a while, and maybe you can remember when you first started following Jesus. And in the beginning, you said, I'm going to fight this habit. I'm going to join a men's group. I'm going to fight against this, this laziness or this apathy. I'm going to ask some people to hold me accountable. I'm going to get up every day, and I'm going to pray. Or I'm going to get up every day and I'm going to read scripture and I'm going to look for one thing that I can apply to my life today that I can do something with. I'm going to live life in community with a home church. I'm going to make that a priority. And if you think about it, those are actually really small disciplines. But you were alert enough, you were awake enough, you were violent enough to see what the kingdom of God meant and take action. You were reading the text. You were convicted about things. You were aware that some things in your life needed to change if you were going to become more like Jesus. So, for example, maybe some of you, um, you, you know, when you were beginning this process, you realized, wow, like, I'm, I'm, I'm snapping at people at work. This isn't cool. I need to apologize. Or, or maybe God started showing you some things or that you needed to do or giving you some passions, and, and you're like, okay, I'm going to do that. Or, or maybe... Um, you, you felt like you were being unfairly criticized by people or gossiped about, and you just realized, you know what? I need to forgive them. Do you remember how hard that was or how hard it is? Do you remember how hard it, it was to just get up and begin your day with God, spending some time with him as you begin your day? I felt really convicted about this recently when I got back from vacation because um, in, you know, we're in a different time zone. So when I got back here, I was waking up at like 5 a.m., going to the gym, having my devotion time, and I'm not a morning person, so it was really strange. Uh, But it was also kind of eye-opening because I realized, wow, there's something special for me about beginning my day with God. And there's nothing more holy about having your time with God in the morning or the afternoon or the evening. It's holy because you're with God, not what time it is. But I was remembering back to... Some of my um, younger years when I was in high school and going into college where I made that a priority, and I woke up early to do that. And for me, that was a sacrifice because I, I wasn't a morning person then either, but God honored that sacrifice. And that time was special, and it did something for me. And I just realized, you know, that's a tension for me to have to wake up early to spend that time with God, but it's a tension that I need in my life. Maybe for some of you, you started off a little more intentional when you first started following Jesus. Maybe you can recall a time where you had more passion, where you were more on fire. And over time, you kind of backed off the gas a little bit, and you started coasting. You started getting a little more comfortable. And hear me, I'm not trying to be legalistic. What, I, what I'm saying here, don't walk away from, from this morning thinking that what I'm saying is that everybody just needs to try harder, because that's not what I'm saying. That's not my heart. But what I am saying is that I'm afraid that if we're not careful, our fear of legalism will become a great excuse to keep us from challenging ourselves to keep growing, to keep becoming more like Jesus. 
This is a very personal thing between you and God. I'm not telling you to do what I'm doing, but that was an example of something that God was convicting me about, a challenge that I needed in my life. So we need change. We need challenge. We need tension. Tension is good. It doesn't mean that you've lost your peace. So remember how uh, much work it seems like or it seemed like when you first started following. And maybe that's where some of you are at. You're recognizing a tension between some relationships that you need to let go of that aren't healthy for you anymore. Or maybe you're recognizing um, some habits or some things that you need to deal with if you're going to become who God's created you to be and who you're called to be to fulfill those purposes. There might be some things that you need to work through. But that's okay. That's the fight. Is there a fight in your life right now? Is there a tension because of who you are and who God's making you to be? If you say you're following Jesus and there's no fight and there's no tension, if nothing takes effort, it's because you're going to sleep. See, if I get in a car and I drive over to see this fort that's being built in enemy territory and I don't hear any, any fighting, I don't hear any gunshots, I don't hear anyone working, that means everyone is either dead or they've fallen asleep. So the first thing that we learn is that love is war. And when you enlist in God's army, you're waging war against evil. And it's the most loving and the most brave thing that you can do. Number two, supernatural evil exists. Supernatural evil exists. This is the second thing that we need to establish, that evil does exist. The devil is real, and there are demonic forces that are against you. Remember what we read in verse 12. It said, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Now, I know a lot of people out there are probably thinking, yeah, like the devil's not really real, right? Even, even referencing the devil has become a pretty rare thing to do in churches today. And I get the heart behind that. Maybe it's because we don't want to give him too much airtime. We're not here to glorify the devil. We're not here to focus on the enemy. Uh, And how we talk about the devil is really important because he's not omnipresent. I mean, you know, when you hear like the devil made me do it or the devil this or I'm just being attacked by the devil, like there's only one of him, (laughs) okay? And he's probably focusing on more influential people than you and I if there's only one of him. He's not everywhere. He's not like God. He's really not that powerful, but he is real. And that's really important for us to know because if we act like there's no enemy, then we're not going to know how important it is that we put on our armor. So the more God begins to work through your life and take you to new levels and to do greater things through you, you're going to meet new levels of opposition, new levels of temptation, um, new levels of an enemy that is trying to keep you from accomplishing God's purpose. So some of us, we may think that it's unintelligent to believe that the devil exists, as if enlightened Christians have figured out by now that the devil isn't really real. I was in France, you know, as I shared the last few weeks, and one of the mornings we woke up and we saw the news about the bombing in Manchester. And it was so sad. You could just feel the the tension, the sadness in the air. And we weren't that far away from Paris to London and one of the things I noticed the, next, the rest of the trip was that in public places, there were soldiers walking around fully armed with huge guns. And they're doing this to intimidate the enemy because the enemy is real. 
You can't say that evil isn't real when a 22-year-old is blowing himself up to kill children. So some think believing in the supernatural and evil is taking things too literally. Let me clarify something before we continue. If you struggle with the idea of the reality of supernatural evil, do you believe in a good God at all? Because if a good supernatural force even exists, how can there not be an evil one? If you like uh, what Jesus says about loving your neighbor and caring for the poor, but then when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning, you can't write him off like that part didn't happen. We can't just pick and choose what we like or what we want to accept or what's easy to, you know, uh, that, that's popular, what's easy to stand behind, but then the things that, that make us uncomfortable, that are more challenging, or the things that we don't really like, we can't just dismiss those. There's no consistency in our beliefs. But secondly, if you deny the existence of supernatural um, evil or all the supernatural completely, at least you're being consistent. But check this out. For two or 300 years, Western civilization has pretty much been under the influence of what we call an enlightenment consensus. And the enlightenment said that faith, belief in God and the devil and so on is subjective. And the way to really find truth is through reason and the scientific method. And that the universe is a closed system, meaning that supernatural miracles and things can't come in from the outside. So if that's what you believe and you say, I'm a modern person and I think believing in the supernatural is kind of silly, the fact is people will tell you at the highest levels of secular philosophy that you cannot prove there's no such thing as the supernatural. The belief, uh, to believe the universe is a closed system takes faith. There's no way you can prove it. When you say, I know miracles can't happen, therefore uh, this couldn't have happened, what you're actually doing is you're making a religious commitment. You're making a faith-based decision. So you can't say that I don't believe in the supernatural because I'm not really a religious person because even believing that it doesn't exist is a religious belief. It's a religious statement of faith. Both sides right now, secular views and Christian views, are all in agreement that the supernatural cannot be disproven. It takes faith to doubt in the supernatural. So where are you placing your faith? Don't just doubt the things that I say. Doubt your own beliefs. That's actually a step towards faith is when you begin to doubt the things that you believe. If Jesus is who he says he is, then you have to listen to what he says when he says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. So the first thing is that love is war. The second thing is that supernatural evil exists. And the third thing is that victory is the Lord's but we must fight. When our passage says, be strong in the power of his might, what it means is that to be a Christian is to fight a battle, but not to fight in our own strength, to fight in the power of the Lord. Now, I don't particularly love military uh, terminology. That's not why I'm using all these illustrations. It's just here in the text. I'm looking forward to a day when Christ returns and all of the war is over and we're completely at peace. But I want you to imagine with me because we are in a spiritual war, that you're a soldier. And a great general comes down to you, and he asks you to take the first charge. You're on the front lines, and he says, I want you to charge. And when you charge, and when you take this stand, it's going to draw out the enemy. And when that happens, an immensely superior power is going to come through you, over you, around you, and it is going to defeat the enemy. We will have a great victory but you're going to have to take 
the first charge. And so you're thinking about it, and you're like, well, we've got this great power. How about this? What if you send planes to go drop some bombs and attack first, and when I see a few white flags, then I'll charge? Isn't that totally how we're wired, though? Like, even if you believe in God and you know how powerful he is and you've seen his power in your life, there's always a future thing, a future step of faith that he's putting in front of you that requires faith, that isn't easy, a door that you have to walk through and you don't know what's on the other side. And that's how our faith grows. As long as you're following Jesus, you will always be being stretched. Your faith will always be being grown. It'll always be being strengthened if you don't turn away from these fights. But you've got to know that it's not in your own strength. The general, he replies, he says, I'm sorry. It doesn't work that way. I need you to charge first. I need you to get up. I need you to fill your mind thinking of the incredible power that will come over, around, through you from all angles. And I think that this is what Philippians 2 is talking about when it says, work out your salvation in fear and trembling. For it is God at work within you to will and to do his good pleasure. So there are some things that God has for you to do that are going to require a fight. They're going to require you to take a charge, to take a step of faith, and that's never going to stop. We're always going to be in this position where God, because he loves us so much that he wants to grow our faith. This is how we become more like him. You don't wait and say, Lord, show me you're trustworthy, and then I'll trust you. He doesn't do it that way. Because it, that was a step of faith right there, wasn't it? Uh, he doesn't do it that way because if he did, he'd simply be doing it. We wouldn't even be engaged in the process. But how cool is it that God has created us for a purpose that requires us to take a stand, that requires us to take a charge, that you can actually have a part to play in all of this for his good pleasure. But right now, maybe some of you, you feel like God's withdrawn, like he's holding back. Maybe you feel like uh, there's temptations around you, like your failures have disqualified you from your purposes. Maybe you feel like you're being asked to do some things that are really scary because you know you can't do them on your own. You can't do them without his power. But Paul says, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. So I want to ask you today as we close, we're going to have a time to respond in worship, some time with Jesus. But before we do that, I want to ask you, what is one thing that God wants you to do? What's one thing that's going to challenge your faith that you can do today? It doesn't need to be a huge thing. I'm not asking you to figure out your whole life right now. I'm saying, is there one thing that God's convicting you about that you need to do, that you need to say, that you need to make right? Maybe it's forgiving someone. Maybe it's uh, maybe there's someone you need to talk to later today. Maybe you need prayer for something. There's uh, something that God's put on your heart, a vision that he gave you a while ago that you just shied away from because the enemy looked too great. You just fell out numbered. You felt like you couldn't do it, but you've forgotten about the power of God. And so as, as we close, I'd like to ask you to bow your heads. I want to pray a prayer for you. And then we're going to wage war together because worship is warfare. Worship is a weapon. When we sing these songs and we respond, we're not just having a good little kumbaya time. We're actually waging war. And we're filled with faith when we do that and God speaks to us. So let me pray for you. Father, we ask now that you would help us 
as we sing this next song. We pray that you would help us to respond to you from our hearts. Some of us realize that there's no fight because we've stopped fighting against things in our lives. We've given up. We've settled. We've gotten comfortable with where we are. But we know that that's not love. Some of us realize we're not putting on the armor of God. We're not obeying you, and we're not trusting in your power. We pray that, you, that we would be brave, that we would depend on you, that as we sing this song, we'd remember what you've done for us because of what you did on the cross. We know that you can bring us through anything that we are facing.